0: Well, hey, good morning, friends. My name is Jason. It is such an honor to be here with you this morning, to each of you in your homes, wherever you're gathered. It really feels special. I mean, you wouldn't typically have a stranger like me in your home, but here I am on your screen. There's a few laughs in the room on that one, and so that's always encouraging. I don't know if you can hear that in the background. It's a good start. It really is special to be with you. I love this church uh, for a lot of reasons, I love the way in which you are really a community. I love your relationship with the community through the food bank and the things you do. I love your pastors, Derwin and Angel and the team so much. And um, I love this church because it's such a rich part of my story is being here. And um, I'm just getting, am I getting a signal from you at the back? I'm not, I'm not going to be able to, to, to interpret the sign language. So you're going to have to be just explicit with me. Okay, you're asking me to do this. We're good now? Thank you, Sean. Sean is a pro. I am obviously not. Sean was doing probably the most clear signaling, but he wearing a mask, so it's like I'm looking past, and I'm like, is he telling me to put on a mask? I thought I was a Anyways, that's besides the point. Listen, I grew up going to this church, and um, I have some pretty special memories, and the most significant of those memories was a series of prayer meetings that happened at Friday morning, on Friday mornings, at 6 a.m. in the basement. And I just snuck down to the basement, and it's cold. They're obviously not wasting precious resources on heating that right now. It's cold down there, and it's dark, but it's a very special place to me. And it was on Friday mornings when we'd go down there. And I was in high school, and I remember one of my youth leaders, whether it was Ben or Tara or Matt Lunt, would come and pick me up from home and drive me. And it wasn't just hillside Youth. It was youth leaders from Hillside and other churches that got together and invited students to come and pray. And every Friday morning, I would be invited and I would come, and not because I wanted to pray. I came because I, I liked my youth leaders and they invited me to come. And I remember consistently falling asleep on the floor downstairs. And it was the old carpet, not the new carpet, but I didn't care as a stinky teenager. And I'd fall asleep on the floor, and I'd fall asleep to the sounds of youth leaders and other students crying out, for our city, for our school, and our friends. And eventually, their passion wore off on me. And I was gripped by a culture of prayer. Like I caught it it did something to me, and I found myself in private, in my room, praying for my friends that didn't know Jesus. And then coming on Friday mornings, and not just falling asleep, but participating and crying out, and God bubbling up a passion. And there began a prayer movement in the Tri-Cities. Every single morning of the week, in one of the high schools, there was a student-led prayer meeting. Every single high school in the Tri-City had a, a before-school prayer meeting, and there's different prayer meetings. Sometimes Monday after school, we'd meet once a month, Friday, at the town center track to pray. And what began to happen is we began to see youth groups all over the city empowering students to reach their friends and do justice and mercy in their school and it was a movement fueled by prayer and my whole ministry life everything I have done since has been shaped and seasoned by that time of prayer and what I'm talking about is a certain kind of prayer Um, I've heard it described like this. I mean, prayer at its core is, is us talking to God, which is an incredible thing just to pause and imagine. We can talk to God. Jesus made this possible for us to have the attention of our Heavenly Father. And I've heard it described like this, and this isn't a perfect way to break it down, but you can think about prayers that are up and in and out. And prayers that are up is like the worship we were just doing, where we sing to God about who he is. We proclaim the goodness of God, and we pour out adoration to God. That would be like up prayer, and that's a very important kind of prayer. It's not what we're talking about today. There's also sort of a prayer in, and it's not selfish. It's actually very good. God wants to do inward work, like a contemplative prayer where we meet with God, that abiding in Him, and Him doing that internal work in our heart, reformatting the way we think to His kingdom worldview, that internal work. And so there's prayer up, there's prayer in, and that's an important kind of prayer, but we're not talking about that this morning. What we're talking about is that prayer out, that all throughout the Bible and in church history, There is an invitation to praying on behalf of others, praying for the needs around us, the things that we see on the news or in our community. Anytime you go, that's not the way it should be, and you cry out to God for that, that's that outward prayer. And just to be very clear, there's not a fine line between these things. They're deeply interconnected, that what we understand about God and what he's doing in here overflows into our prayers for others. There's not firm lines between them, but that outward prayer is what I want to talk about today. And one of the words for that is intercession. I want to talk about intercessory prayer. And if you don't know that word, that's okay. Intercession means to intervene. To intervene. Intercessory prayer is prayer of intervention. One of my favorite kind of compilation videos on YouTube or on Instagram is videos of like dads Saving kids. Well, let me give you an example. This actually happened. I forgot this. It didn't show up in my notes. But yesterday I was at the park with my daughter Millie, and I'm pushing her on the swing. She's three. And it was busy enough at the park, and another boy walked past, and he didn't see, like, kind of the trajectory of the swing. And so Millie was going to just clobber this other young child. So then I grabbed Millie at the back so that she didn't hit the kid, and the dad looked at me and just went, like good stuff. That's a dad win right there. What did I do? I intervened. If your son or daughter is walking towards something dangerous or about to grab something hot and you grab their hand, that's intervention. You know, sometimes my wife, she's very kind. If I'm about to say something, like put my foot in my mouth, she'll tap my leg. Intervention. You know, intervention's a powerful thing. We're talking about prayers of intervention. The idea is standing in the gap. Standing on behalf of those you love, your family, your friends, your city, before God. Standing before God on behalf of a friend that doesn't know Jesus and saying, God, would you move in the heart of my friend? Would you extend your love and your mercy towards them? Those are prayers of intercession. And we see it all through scripture. We see it in Noah, praying before God on behalf of the people of earth. We see it in Abraham. Moses, we see it in the prophets, standing on behalf of the world and the people of Israel, in this case, before God. We see it in the apostles. We see it in Paul's letters, in his prayers. We see it in the disciples. And we see it in Jesus. Jesus did intercessory prayer. There's a number of places we could go. If you want to do this on your own, you could go to John chapter 17. Here's the kind of language you would hear in that whole chapter. He prays for you and for me and his disciples. He says, I'm not, he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So he's praying for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And this is what he says, verse 21. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. So he's praying to the Father for us. And here's the question I want to ask you. Does Jesus have the attention of his heavenly Father? Of course. And how do you think the Father responds to Jesus' prayer of request? Listen intently. See, Jesus stands with authority before God, and here is the great invitation. Please don't miss this. In Christ, we have been given his righteousness, which means right standing. We stand before the heavenly Father like Christ. This is a great mystery. It almost sounds scandalous to say it, but in the same authority that Jesus had to petition the Father, we're invited in Christ, To petition our heavenly father. And so you say, does God, the father, the maker of all things, does he listen to us when we pray? The answer is yes. It's scandalous. It's wild. It's almost shocking. But it is how he has designed his kingdom work. And when we stand before God in the authority we have in Christ and petition for our children, for our city, for our world, we have authority before a God who listens. And this is our primary strategy as the church for building the kingdom. We love coming up with new strategies. What if we do this? Sometimes I think God's just like, no, it's not in your human effort. Yes, provide your best instinct. I love that we're using technology to get us online, but this is not solving the problem. This is not enough. Our primary strategy is, When it comes to bringing God's kingdom to earth, and Jesus is doing it, that's a certainty. But how do we partner with Jesus as we're invited? The primary strategy the church has is prayer. The church has lots of vocational responsibilities. To proclaim the gospel, to be love on display, to care for the widow and the orphan. These are explicit, and we should not forget them. But among the most essential of our responsibilities as followers of God is intercessory prayer. And it's possible, and you've seen this in your own life, there's a way for life to squeeze out the most essential things. Have you noticed that? I don't know what it is. Something about how we're wired as humans. Sometimes the most essential things can be the first thing to be squeezed out. And there's something about us, and I don't want to generalize, but maybe as a Western church, Western evangelical church, I can just speak for myself. There's something about my experience as a follower of Jesus as a pastor That prayer can become second, third, and then a late priority. We can say things like, oh, there are those who pray, but that's not my responsibility. And I do think God brings intercessors to the church to raise the climate and raise the bar and give a disproportionate amount of attention to it. I believe that. He's designed the church that way. But all of us are invited to intercessory prayer. And it's something that God is doing in Canada right now. He is waking the church up to prayer. And we got to get on board. And one of the ways he's doing it is he's sending missionaries from all over the world. It's the ethnic church in Canada that's raising the climate on prayer. It's churches established by missionaries from Asia and Africa coming to our nation and reminding us what it looks like to pray. This is what God is doing in our time. And it is desperate times, isn't it? Like, I think it always is. But is this not a moment that would feel desperate? I know we're hopeful for the vaccine. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it does what it's promised. and That we'll see an end to this, this stage in the COVID journey. And um, I know for a lot of people, following the elections in the states, people put hope that when this thing changes, then maybe the world will be different. here's the scary reality that all of us will face. Whatever side of the political spectrum you are, on the other side of COVID, on the other side of elections, we're going to come to the stark reality that the world is still very broken. And that the brokenness was not just two or three big issues. It wasn't just one bad president and one bad disease. There is a brokenness on planet Earth. And here's the thing about COVID. If there's a vaccine that works, To heal the physical effects, praise God, or to protect us, rather, from the physical effects, praise God. We long for that. But there is no vaccine for the relational implications, the social implications, the economic implications. There's no vaccine for that. We're desperate for God to move in our time. There's no lawmakers there are no scientists that will find a cure for the brokenness and systemic loneliness that we see in our cities right now, for the sorrow that has like gripped the hearts of so many. We need God to move in our time. And we are being invited to partner with God, to wake up from the desperation and say, "God, move in our time. Please intervene. Please intervene. One of my favorite intervention stories in Scripture is in Acts chapter 12. If you've got a Bible handy, flip there, follow along with me. Uh, it's a very, very fun story to read. I want to read the whole thing. Get your imagination going. It's gripping. And um, you just got to, all you've got to know contextually, That the, the text will give us a lot of the context we need. But contextually, just think, okay, here we are, Acts chapter 12. The church is young, and the church is facing great persecution, Uh, from the religious systems and from the political systems of the day, because they're threatened by the growth of this new movement. They called it the way, like this new movement of Jesus' followers. They're threatened by it. They're trying to snuff it out because it's threatening their power. So uh, verse 1 of Acts chapter 12 says this, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. They were arrest, he was arrest, arresting them to persecute them. They, it's not that they did anything wrong, they just wanted to snuff this thing out. So he had James, check this out, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So now he's killed one of the Christians. And check this out, when he saw that this was met with approval among the people of the day, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So Herod sees that the people are pleased by the killing of James. So he goes, I'm going to take one of the key leaders in the church, Peter, and I'm going to arrest him, and I'm going to put him on trial that I might have him killed as well. It says that this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5, and this is the key verse that I want to emphasize today. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. This is the angel doing that. Struck him on the side, woke him up. (laughs) It's so good. Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision makes sense. This is so crazy. He thinks he's dreaming as this has happened. So they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they walked through the length of the street, suddenly the angel left. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the people were hoping would happen. Verse 12, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the door of the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Did you see what just happened there? She's so pumped. I got to just talk about this for a second. Luke, the author, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, this is so intense, okay? James has been killed. Peter is, life is on the line. And then he just slips in a bit of, com, of like, comedic relief into the drama. Like, do you see that? It's like, he comes to the door, knocks on the door, Rhoda comes down, and then hears Peter's voice, is so excited, leaves Peter outside, runs upstairs, says to all the other disciples, Peter's here. They don't believe it. They don't believe that God answered the very thing that they're praying for. But verse 16 says, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. I love it. The people of God intervened through prayer. And God heard their prayers. And he intervened. I want to just give three observations from this text. Specifically from verse 5. It says in verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Three very, very simple observations. The first observation about this text, the word but. What Luke wants us to see, and but is a powerful word, isn't it? It's a very profound word. We should focus on this word, but. And don't, don't be cheeky here. Don't, don't get distracted. Stay with me. Don't, I know sometimes when you talk about maybe your kids are giggling and if they're watching with you, just stay focused. It's a powerful word. It's a word of intervention. But shows up in the story and change the trajectory of the story. Here's what Luke wants us to see. You read it later. You hear it in the narrative. He lays out what happened to James. And then says that this pleased the people, and Herod thought, man, i got to do more of this. So what Luke wants us to see is that Peter is on the same trajectory as James. He's on the same trajectory as John's brother James. But the people of God prayed. Peter was on his way, the leader of the young church, on his way to death. But the people of God prayed. But the church was earnestly praying. I wonder how much our lives have been shaped by people praying. I never want to take for granted. I've got got grandparents that pray for me. And I know that my grandma prays for me every day. And I believe that it could be said of my life, Jason was on this trajectory, but Margaret Ballard prayed. And we won't know until we're on the other side of history just how much the prayers of the people of God has intervened in our lives, in our cities, in our nations. But we should not take for granted. And what would it look like for you and I to put a "but" statement in our families, in our friends? in our businesses. Our business was on this trajectory, but the owners humbled themselves before God and prayed. Their family was on the edge of destruction, but they got before God in humility and prayed. The first observation from this text is the power of the word but. The second observation, very simple, the instinct of the first Christians. Because think about where we are historically. This is, this is as close as we get to what it looks like for followers of Jesus to make sense of all that Jesus said and did as they contextualize it and work it out into their lives. And so we should take note, what did the first Christians do in response to a situation like this? Their instinct was to pray. Lots could be done. They could petition government officials, they could do all sorts of things, and we don't know that they didn't do those things. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to do those things, but among all of the resources at their disposal to respond to Peter being in prison, their instinct was to pray earnestly for God to intervene. And so I have to ask myself the question what is my instinct when I see trouble? What's your instinct when you see trouble? What's your instinct? What's the instinct? What's your instinct when you see something and it's not how it's supposed to be? I mean, that is the heart often of followers of Jesus is you look around and you see things that they're not as they're supposed to be. This isn't right. This isn't how it's meant to be. What's your instinct in that moment? I was just recently experiencing some conflict in a really important relationship to me. And I began to do what I do, which is to try to problem solve. How do I fix this? And I noticed that my instinct for weeks wasn't to pray. It was to try to problem solve. And then there's this moment where I go, oh, I have to bring this to God in prayer. The first instincts of the followers of Jesus was to pray. I think about the language in James chapter 5. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. I love that language. It's like, anything good going on? Let's pray about it. And you in trouble? Let's pray about it? Are you sick? Let's pray about it. That needs to be the instinct, the response of the followers of Jesus. The Christian instinct is to pray. I want to tell you, I've been trying to study revivals. I'm just longing for revival in our time. And I just get a kick out of reading about past revivals where God moves in a land or a region or amongst a people and just brings about his power in a dynamic way and lives start coming to know him. And one of my favorite is the revival, revival in the Scottish Isles of the Hebrides. And uh, much of the revival happened under the ministry of Duncan Campbell. And uh, you can go online and read and even hear his account of the revival in the Hebrides. And uh, he says right off the top, he goes, this all started before I even showed up. This wasn't my idea. And this is what he says in his account of the revival in the Hebrides. He says, now I'm sure that you'll be interested to know how in November of 1949, this gracious movement began on the island of Lewis. He says, two old women, one of them 84 years old, and the other 82, are there any 84-year-olds or 82-year-olds on right now? says that the two of them were greatly burdened because of the appalling state of their own church. It was true that not a single young person attended public worship. Not a single young man or young woman went to church. This didn't have to be 1949. I can hear 82-year-olds and 84-year-olds today just being appalled at the state of their parish. And we live in a moment, if I can just take a pause, I'll come back to the account from Duncan Campbell in a moment, where It's not just older people that are appalled. In fact, as millennials and Gen Z and younger, we're often outraged by the state of things. And we've been modeled um, culturally that what we're meant to do is to go to social media platforms and complain about it. And I'm not cynical about this. I think that advocacy is important. And there are many people who do more than just, just talk, the real action. But the majority of us, it's just talk. And there is a dangerous angle when we see things that are not as they should be and we just complain about it. So this is what it says. It says, they were appalled <laughs> by the state of things. Not a single young man or woman went to the church. And those two women were greatly concerned and they made it a special matter of prayer. Like the first Christians, their instinct to a moment of this is not how it should be was prayer. They were so burdened that both of them decided to spend time in prayer, twice a week. On Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening and remained on their knees until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Two old women in a very humble cottage. So the two of them kept meeting for weeks, and then one of them had a vision while they were praying. And in this vision, they saw the church filled with young people and a minister who they did not know preaching to them. So they called their pastor, and they decided to invite more people to pray. The pastor, their pastor was like, well, why don't we call more people around this to pray? And at one of their prayer meetings, which was quite small still, God poured out his spirit and spoke through, one of the, through a vision to one of the young men. Later on, Duncan Campbell would find himself on the island, and on his first night there, at the prayer meeting. This is the account. We got to the church about quarter to nine to find about 300 people gathered. I gave an address, he said. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting. There was a sense of God and a consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church around quarter to 11. They did church pretty late. Different time, I guess. So he's just saying, like, it was good. Yeah, I think God was there, and we had a good time. And, but nothing special was really happening. So we pronounced the benediction, and we're leaving. He says, just as I was walking down the aisle, along with the young deacon who had read the psalm in the barn, referring back to the vision that happened earlier, he suddenly stood in the aisle And looking up to the heavens, this young man said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. Soon, he was on his knees in the aisle praying. And then he fell into a trance once again. Just then, the door opened. It was then 11 o'clock. The door of the church opened and the local blacksmith came back into the church and said, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. When I went to the door of the church, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. Where had they come from? What had happened? I believe that very night, God swept by in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happened in the early days of the apostles was happening in this parish. Over 100 young people were at the dance in the parish hall. They weren't thinking of God or eternity. God was not in any of their thoughts. They were there to have a good night when suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance. The music ceased, and in a matter of minutes, the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from a plague, and they made for the church. They were standing outside, and they saw lights in the church, and and that it was a house of God. So they went in. I love that. And this marked the beginning of a profound move on the Isle of Hebrides. And it started because two women, an 82-year-old and an 84-year-old, said this is not how it should be. And they contended for, before God for their friends and for their city in prayer. Their instinct was to pray. And I feel that discontentedness, don't you? That discontent that says, where are the young people? Or, there's so much division. And maybe it's more personal, it's something in your life, but you feel that discontent. There's a healthy, holy content in Christ. Paul talks about being content in all circumstance, but there's a holy discontent. There's a holy discontent. It's like when, when Jesus, in, um, in, his, in, in, in recorded in Matthew, when he's preaching, um the Sermon on the Mount, and he's doing the Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are those who mourn. That language of the mourner is like the person that looks around and mourns that the world is not how it should be. One commentator called them aching visionaries. They ache for the vision of the kingdom to invade our land. And there is something to be said about the Christian aching visionaries. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There is a longing and a holy discontent that says this is not how it should be that drives us to prayer, that drives us to go to that place of prayer. First thought, the word but. Second, their instinct was to pray. Third, they prayed earnestly. It says that they prayed earnestly. And this word, the same word translated for uh, earnestly here is the same word used uh, by the same author, Luke. In chapter 22, of his gospel, and he, this is in the Mount of Olives, this is where Jesus knows that he's going to die, and he prays that, he says to the Father, like, if it's possible for this cup to be taken from me, take it, and it says that he prayed earnestly, he prayed earnestly, same word. It's connected to the same word used in Hebrew in Psalm 63, where the psalmist talks about being desperate for God, seeking him earnestly, like someone seeking for water in a dry and parched land. Earnest prayers. And earnest, passionate, consistent prayers go against all of our Canadian sensibilities, don't they? We're just cool. Just keep it cool, you know. God, if you want to, you know, whatever you want to do, there is a biblical principle to passionate prayer. That moves the heart of God. You see it through scripture. You see the prophets prayed this way. This way. The apostles prayed this way. Jesus prayed this way. Passion prayer. And I'm not talking about style. I've been in Catholic prayer meetings and Pentecostal prayer meetings. In South America, in Europe, in Canada. I'm talking about what happens when the people of God are gripped by the heart of God for the world around them. Where they believe the biblical worldview that says that we are invited to partner with God in prayer. If I had more time, I'd want to talk about how there is a bad worldview, a bad theology that has seeped in to your life and my life and caused us to believe that our prayers don't make a difference. And here's my only challenge. If, if, you're, if, if, you've, if you've found yourself shaped by a theology that says, like, you know what? At the end of the day, because God's sovereign, therefore our prayers don't need to be passionate or intentional or often, then I want to challenge that. Because yes, God is sovereign, but he's sovereign over his sovereignty. And in his sovereign design, he's invited us to partner with him in prayer. And I would just ask this. The reformers, and, or don't even go reformers. Let's go Bible. The prophets. The apostles, those who are shaping your theology, how did they pray? Because what we see modeled by the apostles and we see modeled by Jesus was a prayer that believed that it could partner with God to change human history. We're invited to partner with God. In his profound sovereignty, we can rest at night without the weight of the world on our shoulders. But when we put our hands to the work, we're invited to meet God in the place of prayer. And God is inviting us to meet him. In the place of prayer. We can partner with God, and there are all kinds of reasons why we might find ourselves not giving uh, time in our life to earnest, persistent prayers. And I'm convicting myself, listen, I'm not coming here as someone who's like, "Man, I got this together." I'm coming here as someone I'm a church planner in Vancouver looking out at the city, coming to the conclusion that no amount of human effort can win this city, transform the city, break the backs of the principalities that had their way in this city. Man, there's no other option, and I feel like God is calling his church in this time to pray. Why don't we pray? We talked about wrong beliefs, but often it's it's not even that complicated. It's just often we're too busy, too distracted, too addicted to instant, and too adverse to discomfort. Prayer is uncomfortable. Prayer is not instant. And so if we want to see our lives moved by prayer, if we want to partner with God in prayer, we need to prioritize and plan for personal and corporate prayer. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't have to wait to the end of the message You could grab a pen and a paper right now. You could look at your calendar for the week and say, where have I planned to pray? No guilt, no shame. This isn't about guilt or shame. We don't do any of this to earn God's affection. You've got all of it. It's an invitation to partner with God in prayer, to stand on behalf of others in the place of prayer, to let a holy discontent bubble up in our hearts and a longing to see God move in this time, to plan to prioritize prayer. And I've been trying to think about a picture that makes sense of all of this. And I was just thinking about about farmers this week. (laughs) And um, I just imagined this scene. And uh, imagine there's a farmer in this house. And there's a house next door for sale. And someone moves into that house, Okay. And the person that moves into that house, they don't know anything about farming. Somehow they missed it. They just go to Save On and they see the produce there and they just think someone just made this produce. They just love buying the produce. They have no idea that this produce started as a seed in the ground. So they move in next to the farmer, okay? And the farmer's going out every morning, you know, planting seeds, tending to the soil. And like the person next door wakes up a couple hours later, looks out on the field, it's cold. They look out and they're like, what is that guy doing out there for so many hours? Like, It's just so confusing. And you just imagine over weeks and weeks and weeks, this neighbor who has no idea what farming is, just thinks that the other neighbor's crazy. What are you doing waking up early? What are you doing in the cold? What are you doing tending to the soil? There's no evidence of outcome. And then even as some little green things start bubbling up, they're still kind of like, what the heck is going on? Now here's the thing. The farmer, for no moment, has any regrets of any of the time spent. Why? Because the farmer knows there's a harvest coming. The neighbor thinks he's insane. What are you doing using all of your time like this? But the farmer is like, this is how the world works. I've seen a harvest before, and I know a harvest is coming. So I'm going to do what I do, and I'm going to contend in prayer. And I feel like the message this morning is this simple. This is how the kingdom works. There is a harvest coming. He who is the Lord of the harvest has promised it. But the, one of the ways that we as followers of Jesus partner with the Lord of the harvest is to contend in the early mornings in prayer. And it will look crazy. And sadly, it might even look crazy to other followers of Jesus. But this is how the kingdom of God works. We contend, we partner for the harvest in prayer. And when we do this, we get to see the world changed, and we are changed. Here is why it's so beautiful when a church gives themselves to prayer in this way. And I know you're in a series right now about being with, with God and one another. When we go to the place of intercession, we stand before the face of God. And every time we go towards God in prayer, we remember this is possible because of the finished work of Jesus. And as you go to that place in prayer, you're reminded again of the countenance of our Heavenly Father who looks at this world not with anger, but with kindness and love and longing. Who looks at you and I with great love in his eyes. And when we go to that person in prayer, when we go before God in prayer, we're changed by him. And he softens the callous off our heart. He touches our eyes with eyes of compassion. And he makes us like him when the church is a praying church it's a church becoming like Christ in this world and that's what he's calling us to be let me pray god thank you so much for this time together um god what i i'm i want to ask you is that that my impassioned plea towards prayer um that it wouldn't be a distraction to anyone. That there would be no sense of guilt or not doing enough. I just ask that all like, kind of guilt and shame would just fall to the side. I, I do ask God for a real sense of your spirit just to invite us again in a fresh, loving way to pray. God, we know we don't pray as we ought to. But God, we sense you lovingly inviting us in this desperate time to be a people of prayer. And so, God, I pray that you would saturate our minds and hearts by the biblical worldview that lets us sleep at night knowing that you're fully in control, that we don't have to strive or be anxious, and yet invites us to partner with you in a dynamic way through impassioned prayer. And, God, we we just ask that you move in our time. God you see the brokenness in our nation and our world, and for many of us way closer to home in our own families. So God, I want to pray for the mom and dad right now who maybe has lost hope because they've been praying for maybe their son or daughter or some cause for so long. God, I pray you would renew their hope. God you would strengthen their faith, that you have your, their faith, that they would know that you have not forgotten them, and that you hear their prayers, that you would renew our faith. God, forgive us uh, for the pride of self-reliance. God, forgive us for the moments when we sometimes think, I think, I think we've got this. God, we just confess this morning. We do not have this. We need you. We're desperate for you. Thanks for including us. Thanks for letting us partner with you. But we stand before you asking you to move in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.